The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Hello and welcome listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and I'm happily joined today by John Blank, who is the Chief Strategist for Zacks Investment Management. Um, John Blank has a PhD from MIT. He creates our monthly stock market outlook, and uh, he's calling in actually from Los Angeles this morning. So uh, glad to have you with us, John. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, we were talking about uh, the weather off the uh, thing. We don't have to really get into that. There's plenty to talk about, as it turns out. Uh, one day ahead of a new administration uh, coming in to the White House. And uh, I think we, we've, we've kind of exhausted a lot of these uh, conversations on The Steady Investor as far as what to expect or, or what, you know, what's the, the, the backward look toward the last eight years with President Obama, what to look forward to with the Trump rally. I did have a question, though, this morning, and I, I kind of wanted to challenge it uh, to you, John. Uh, do you think that with the market being as stagnant as it's been over the past couple of weeks, with all this good econ data, including Q4 earnings, including the big banks, Netflix after the bell yesterday, we're still in the red as of this point uh, this morning. And uh, do you think there's a that the market is kind of fearing a Trump, I'm sorry, a Trump rally hangover of some sort? Well, Mark, the the answer is trading strategy 101, which is buy the rumor and sell the news. So the Trump rally began when Trump was elected, which was the rumor that there would be tax cuts and infrastructure spending and and a, and a, and a fresh look at regulations and, and all of that. So we ramped up quickly, and that was the buy the rumor. And now the news of Trump's presidency will be sold and closed for a profit. And so what you're seeing now is, at a high level, nothing more than trading strategy, which is people are closing bets that worked over the last couple months. And they'll wait and see, as the actual Trump administration enters the picture, where to place their real bets on the back of real policies. And so I think it's really just a rotation in, in tactical thinking on the part of a lot of trading outfits. And... Uh, I don't think it's probably going to end next week, even though we get the new president, because it's not likely that much will happen right away, even though he's talking about it, because government, even if he thinks he can move fast, he's going to find out quite quickly is that the House and the Senate can slow him down quite dramatically. It's a different ballgame, isn't it? Right. It's a different ballgame, and the reason is that it's a republic. You have to remember the United States was not set up to be the first democracy in the world. It was set up by aristocrats in the face of a monarch, to deal with a monarchy, and put for the first time in 1,800 years a republic into place. Now, a republic is res publica, which is property for the people. So the issue with the republic is you're just trying to set up a very stable, 
checks and balances government that protects the property of the people. Not the people, the property of the people. So this is the idea, the Senate and the House and the presidency, this is the, you know, the presidency was the consuls of Rome and the Senate was the Senate of Rome and the, and the House of Commons and the people uh, is, is basically where the Congress comes from. So this idea um, has been lost on a lot of people, but the truth is it's also been lost on Donald Trump. You are not uh, elected to be a king. Uh, your governance will be uh, held in thrall by the republic and the, the, the constraints it puts upon you. And even though they're, you're in your own party, and even though they uh, uh, support a lot of what you're doing, there still is a procedural element to any change, and that could take months. Okay, meaning all the all the good changes he wants to make, uh, even even things like uh, tax cuts and and deregulation, all those things you think will take longer than people are anticipating at this point? Yeah, I think it'll take six months on the minimum. I mean, the announcement again. The problem here as a trading strategy is is again it's by the rumor, sell the news. So the actual announcement and discussion of tax cuts, the market can move on, and then they can sell into the news that the tax cuts are being implemented. So, so again, being what, a forward indicator. What we could see here is a lot of movement when the uncertainty of what actually will be happening is announced by this president. So I don't, I don't want to say that the markets won't move, but I will say that the policies won't move that easily because the markets will move quicker than the policies. Right, and that's that's in in line with the forward indication of the of the equities market in a general sense. But you're saying that there's a rotation currently. Do you, is it going uh, toward uh, U.S. Treasuries because we're at uh, 2.4 and above, uh, which is uh, amazing considering that when we first started doing the steady investor back in July of 20, 2016, it was a full percentage point lower than that. And so, uh, yeah, well, first of all, 1.32 was just an incredible face plan of a a. Uh, interest rate. And we're not going to see that again because one is the short end is now 50 basis points higher, which is half of that story. That's true. That takes you to 1.8. The other 650, 60 basis point is the inflation rate's a lot higher, um, which we've seen play out at the 3% annual uh, rate of wage growth, which passes through to inflation, which passes through to the tenure. So all of this, frankly, uh, is actually um, a fairly depressed tenure at 2.4% because you probably should see in light of the coming rate cuts and the higher inflation rate, uh, something like three. So the reason you don't actually see higher is, is good old Mario Draghi is still on the on the news, and he just announced today himself that he's staying the course with um, $60 billion in monthly bond buys. And so just to give you an idea of what's going on, and because nobody in the United States seems to understand this because they don't pay attention to the news, I'll quote Mario Draghi this morning. This is the ECB, and it says the governing council continues to expect the key ECB interest rates to remain at present or lower levels for an extended period of time and well past the horizon of the net asset purchases. So let me repeat that. The governing council continues to expect the key ECB interest rates to remain at present or lower levels for an extended period of time and well past the horizon of the net asset purchases. <laughs> that's a so, very dovish statement, and that's why the euro fell. I mean, he's basically saying either we'll be at minus 0.4% negative deposit rates and zero on our policy rates, or we'll be lower. And we'll be, we'll be lower that. for longer than anything that has to do with the $60 billion in quantitative easing that's already extended out through uh, 2018. So the problem with 
a lot of bullishness on the 10-year is that the 10-year is a long-term interest rate. It's set by the effects of government bond buying, and that is pushing down the upside to the bond rate. So what we're looking at here with two to three rate hikes by the Fed this year, which is going to take us up 75 basis points, mm-hmm. is you know, a very, very, very flat yield curve because it's not likely that we're going to see a 10-year above 3 3.5% three this year. Okay. And a lot of this is because of the, the global pressures, well, not just the ECB. You're talking about the Bank of Japan and, and other places, too, that are uh, they're, they're, they're really slowing the growth overall on the global market stage. Well, the, the thing you got to remember here is the United States is, you know, we just put in a 43-year low on unemployment claims. We are so far ahead in our recovery from the financial collapse, and the rest of the world had another financial collapse in, three years later in 2011. And so they're only four years out from their recovery, and they came out of it having gone down with us three years earlier. So they had a double face plant. They're going to have a long way out. Right. And that pressure is, is continuing to play out in the, in the financial markets because international financial markets are very linked. Uh, and this is the story that, that makes me less sure that the whole bank bet is, is, is already priced in at this point because I don't really think a lot is going to happen this year that we didn't see last year, meaning I don't think we're going to see more than two or three rate hikes this year. And that's, by the way, Mark, that gets us to one and a half percent on the tenure on the right. short end. One and a half percent on the short end at the end of this year, if we get there. And yeah. that's, a, that's like four rate hikes, right? That's pretty aggressive in terms of what they're saying. If we still get there by the end of this year, that will be a lower initial position than any other rate hiking cycle in history. <laughs> we are still not even back to like a very low rate. I mean, when we did this before in 02 and 01, you know, we were at two, two and a half percent on the short end. Uh, now we're we're in, we're not likely to get to one and a half before we even see the end of this year. Why? Well, that's after going cutting straight to the bone after uh, the 2008 collapse, obviously. Right, but that gives you a, the idea that just calling for you know knowledge of a rate high cycle and calling for the end of the bull market and calling for the end of all this upside is misstating the fact of just how low and how aggressive this monetary stimulus is and that we're not getting out of this anytime soon, which right. is why you have to stay bullish. Right. Well, I want to know, you know, well, you talk a lot about the stock market outlook that you produce every month, John. And uh, and by the way, uh, the, for those uh, people who are listening to the Steady Investor right now, you can call this 800 number and you can get a free copy of the stock market outlook by John Blank. Uh, and it's a very comprehensive report. We're going to actually delve into it a little bit here, John, in just a moment. I wanted to give out the phone number, though. It's 800 918 3114, and um, that's also the number you can call a representative at Zach's Investment Management, where you can dus- uh, where you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. You can also, uh, for more information, email us at info at zimwealth, that's Zach's Investment Management, Z-I-M, wealth.com, or visit our website at zimwealth.com. Um, so in that uh, stock market outlook, John, um, I wanted, there was one thing that, a couple things actually that stuck out to me. Um, and you were talking just now about we're really not going to see the benefit of a lot of these policies and in uh, in uh, economic pickup until 2018. But what produces this is a quote from you. What produces U.S. optimism on 2017? One word: Trump. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. Well, uh, the, Trump. Um, the way we have to think about Donald Trump at this stage um, is through. Um, the, the lens of New York City. 
Uh, you know, Donald Trump is very much a New York City Manhattanite, and his family and himself, uh, going back generations, has been in this city. And so anybody in the Manhattan, particularly his level of wealth, is interlinked to the other institutions of Manhattan, which includes, obviously, Goldman Sachs. And so Anthony Scaramucci, who was a broker at Goldman Sachs, used to run this group called Skybridge Capital. And, you know, he's the one member of the Trump clan that um, was in Davos this week speaking. Very intelligent speaker, very gregarious guy. Now, Anthony Scaramucci, for years, when he ran Skybridge, he sold it about a week ago, um, would come out to Las Vegas and have a huge confab of big hedge fund hitters. And he has been supporting the Trump candidacy uh, for for a year or two, uh, more than more than just a little bit of time. He really saw this. So I think the way to think about Donald Trump is that this is you know if Barack Obama was the Chicago getting his act together to elect a president, and I think you know David Axelrod and people like him really had a, a large role in that in that ascent because they had the campaigning. Abilities, and they really wanted to say, "Hey, we've done a mayor, we've done a senator, let's do a president." In yeah. this case, I think what we're seeing here is a New York reversion, and New York is getting coalesced around Donald Trump. But my point here is that Donald Trump cannot and will not run this country. He will run it with Goldman Sachs, whether you like it or not, and with a lot of other infrastructure that comes from the Republican Party through his vice president. So. What we're seeing here is a New York-centric um, presidency, and we're seeing Goldman Sachs in hope, if, and I think you should have hope, is that this is a, a Goldman Sachs that we used to see, where a lot of people try to use what they learn at Goldman Sachs and help the country. And I think that's where I'm headed myself. Is that right? You think you'd do that? That's interesting. That's, yeah, well, that's what I want to point out. Donald Trump is going to be a very gregarious guy. He's going to be out pounding the flesh and making connections. He's a showman, so they put your showman in the front office. And But the show must be run by a lot of people. And, you know, you have Scaramucci. You have uh, Gary Cohn, who was, you know, basically the number two guy at Goldman Sachs. You have Mnuchin, who is a Treasury uh, nominee in front of the House Banking Committee as we speak. And, you know, very senior guy. I personally, you know, he worked for CIT. He sold his business to CIT, and he was on the board of CIT. And I personally have also been working for CIT during the last five years that he's been working with them. So <laughs> I'm not really an outsider on that either. And I can tell you from that whole experience, the reason he got involved with CIT is because the CEO of CIT was an ex-Goldman Sachs guy. And they all disappeared. You know, disentangled themselves from Goldman Sachs for the last decade or two, only to reentangle themselves in various arrangements out there in the world. And I don't say this in a negative sense. That this is just how the life works. It's no different than the McKinsey diaspora, or the BCG diaspora, or the Ernst and Young diaspora, or J.P. Morgan diaspora. There's these major brands, and that's where you get your training. And this thing is going on. So my point is that the Trump administration might be uh, egregiously conventional in its thinking about a lot of financial issues okay. uh, going forward with that imprint, if you want to be positive. If you want to be negative, you can say that this is going to be, you know, the great the great octopus from the tollway crisis coming back to haunt us. Um, I doubt that happens, because I don't think they want to repeat that, and I don't think they're that stupid. 
Right. I mean, it's probably pretty fresh in even people's memories who would like to see uh, things like Dodd-Frank go away completely. But they also don't want to go uh, probably not that far into the over-exuberance that they had uh, that led to the to the crash in, in 2008. Um, well, you, by the way, we're in 2017, which is almost a decade later. The people, other than, uh, you know, Blankfein, who was around, um, a lot of the people are gone. And these are different people, uh, even though they work the same place. And mm-hmm. uh, the same general and they philosophy. Have a different I mean, understanding. You know, for example, Mnuchin was out here running One West, and this was IndyMac. I mean, this was, you know, he gets beaten up, but the truth was he bought, like, the basic, like, the, the crime ridden centerpiece of the 08 crisis out of basically a bankruptcy situation from the feds when he got out here. And he turned it around and then sold it back to CIT when they wanted a retail banking footprint in the Los Angeles area because they didn't have one. So um, I cannot say, you know, that anything other than he learned a ton about mortgage lending and Mm -hmm. retail banking during those six years, and he isn't very well qualified to think through these issues as they affected the market. So he saw Dodd-Frank get implemented, but he also saw uh, Dodd-Frank from the point of view of a retail banker who tried and dealt with mortgage loans. And we have to think through that he knows what, is good and bad about that. And he also made a ton of money at One West, and I would tell you that that means he doesn't really give a damn about money because he's got so damn much of it. So, <laughs> you know, he's a smart guy, I can tell you that. Um, he learned a ton doing this that is applicable to the nation's situation, which is great, and he's probably an excellent choice for Treasury Secretary, and I bet he'll be nominated. Okay, and that's today he's having the hearings, by the way, as well. He's, gonna, he's on the Hill uh, probably as we speak. Um, right, he is. And I, you know, I watched a little bit of the briefings, and it was incredibly boring. I wouldn't tell anybody to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably maybe a good thing overall, uh, considering right. what we've seen yeah. uh, most recently. Like, you know what, John, yeah, we're going to take a point. Sure. I mean, you get to Donald Trump, and he's exciting, and he's Twittering, and then you turn on C-SPAN and watch four and a half hours of dialogue, and you realize that, you know, you might, as, as literally one of the senators said, you may want to take a Valium to Steve Mnuchin after the first hour. <laughs> it was that boring. So. Hey, John, hold on to these thoughts. We're going to take a short break, John, and we're going to be right back. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. Please stay tuned. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. 
You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. This is your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined again today by John Blank, the Chief Strategist for Zach's Investment Management. Um, we've been talking about, uh, well, actually, we've been picking apart, not picking apart, going into uh, John's monthly stock market outlook, uh, which is, uh, yields a ton of information uh, for anybody who's an, uh, an informed investor. It's really must read. It's a must read. And actually, to, to get your free copy of that, you can call this number, 800 918 3114, uh, and that's uh, to get the free stock market outlook by John Blank. Uh, comes out once a month. The most recent one uh, was after the BLS job support, if I'm not mistaken, uh, earlier this month. And that's the also, also the same number you can call, 800-918-3114, where you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. For more information, email us at info at zimwealth.com or visit our website, zimwealth.com. Uh, okay, John, let's uh, get back into it. In the break, you were saying something that I found extraordinary. And we were talking about jobless claims, which are at pretty much historic lows. I mean, you have to say, 234,000 jobless claims in the last week. If it stays at this level, that would be the lowest since the 1970s, when we didn't have a workforce anywhere near this big. Uh, but the, what, what really struck me is that you said the unemployment rate, which is currently at 4.7%, 4.6%, uh, might go down to as low as 4%. Is that possible? Yeah, in 2000, we were down at 4% for almost a year and a half. So that's the destination of this economy, if you think we're in the same structure underneath it. And so, yeah, the official unemployment rate is, you know, over the next course of this 6 to 12 months, is probably going to 4% in the United States. So we're, we've got a little ways to go. I mean, uh, Mark, one of the things I'll give our viewers a little up, up now, that they can just go ahead and Google U6, U6 unemployment rate. And this is the unemployment that includes people who are part-time working but, you know, would rather have a full-time job. And right. so this, this particular unemployment rate is 9.2%. Wow. Now, what, what's relevant here is not in 2000. At that point, it was 7%. The U6 was 7%. We're at 2.5% to go on that. But more importantly, in 07, 08, in a much weaker recovery during the housing period, much closer to now, the U6 was around 8%. So we still have 1.2% on the U6 unemployment. So the, the way to think about this is that people are still, eight years later, shuffling around and looking for more fulfilling work, more full-time work, more, more work with a monthly paycheck as opposed to an hourly scheme. And that, that unemployment rate has at least another 1.2% to go, and that means that we have at least another year or two for it to get to where it was in 07. And by the way, if it wants to go down to 2,000 levels, it's going to go down to 7%. So it also tells you that if we're at 4% in unemployment, but we're at a 9% U6, which is a very different structure when we were last at 4%. Last time we were at 4% in unemployment, we were at 7%. So that's telling you there's still a lot of sketchiness out there in this economy that needs to be wrung out, and that still tells us that, like I said earlier, we're very unlikely to see the interest rates rise more than three-quarters of a basis point 
over this course of this year because we still have a ways to run this thing down and improve this economy's overall performance. And that's fitting the, the Fed's dual mandate, of course, of uh, full employment and uh, uh, manageable interest rates, too. Um, yeah, so the U6... Right, well, the dual well, mandate is not that, Mark. The, the mandate is is the targeted inflation rate of 2% is the number one mandate, and the other one is full employment, which is classed as 4%. So okay. the dual mandate is non-inflationary full employment. So non-inflationary, meaning we target the expected 2% inflation rate, and full employment, meaning we look for 4% on the unemployment rate at the official level all the way in. Okay, I stand corrected. But getting back to the U6 for a second, uh, following the collapse in 08, which again, yeah, right, you're, it's almost a decade old, uh, but we've been over 10% for most of that time. Matter of fact, we just uh, finally caught under uh, under 10%, I believe, sometime 2015, maybe even 2016. Do you recall that? that? That's correct. Yeah, we were as high as 16 and a half, 17% in 2010. Right, right. And that's before they had. So, you know, right now we do have a lot of Uber drivers and that counts for employment, right? But so that's not necessarily the I don't mean to pick on Uber, but the the, the more fulfilling employment uh, hasn't really quite been realized to the same extent that it was, you know, 17 years ago. Um, that's true. That is true. We're seeing a lot more part-timers and we're seeing a lot more, you know, gig economy kind of stuff. And uh and you know, you particularly see that at the very low ends of an economy like I live in in Los Angeles, you see, you know, we have 13,000 homeless people, and they're all over the place. So, yeah, we're in a boom, but if you've got drug issues, if you've got, you know, um, problems putting a paycheck together when the rents are double what they are in other parts of the country, you know, the bottom end gets blown out in a, country, in a city like this even eight or ten years after a boom has been going on. Right, right. Um, but going back to some of these other numbers, we are seeing uh, things that are that are metrics that people do pay close attention to, such as average hourly earnings for private sector work- workers, and that continues to raise modestly, maybe, but uh, it's up. So we're we're seeing uh, the things are pointed in the right direction. And then I would think that with a, a new administration coming in and, and focusing this much on new jobs, manufacturing jobs, repatriation jobs, uh, we may actually see even a boom uh, to that. To those levels, is that would you say that's probably true, or? or well, here's the here's way I would like to think about this, Mark. And I, I okay. have done a lot of work on this. From I work on the side as a chief economist for the largest uh, manufacturing cluster in the United States out here, and I've been doing right. it for five years. And what I've learned about this Trump presidency, why he won the rural areas and and the, the non-coastal areas. As it's tied into our growth rate, why it's been so weak is what happens when you open free trade and allow so much automation coming from info technology into the system. And they're both the two major causes. But when you do that, you decapitate your manufacturing base. You ship it offshore. Now, why this matters to this election um, is because one mistake, you know, high-minded people. And I mean people that I know in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Harvard, and big conferences that, you know, dumb dumb knuckleheads like Mark Vickery never go to, but I get a chance to. What you find out is that you're always going to say free trade is great. You're always going to put what's called the Washington orthodoxy first. And what we've learned over the last 10 or 20 years is that there's actually something very diabolical about doing this, because when you're sitting in Cambridge or Los Angeles or Chicago in a nice office, you're not sitting where the grinding effects of that outsourcing are going to hit you. Because what manufacturers do is they look to put a big plant, you know, a 400,000-foot square foot plant, and they don't put it in downtown Chicago. They put it out in an industrial area 
Or right. they put it out in a place in Indiana where there's a small town where there's workers coming uh, in and have cheaper housing, and they can find a cheaper place to, to, to house the plant itself. So the, when you get the cost of living down for your workers and you get the cost of the land down, there's a natural bent for manufacturing to find its way into the rural areas of this country or the very industrial areas of the urban areas, like my current location. We have literally a city called the City of Industry, and that's where all the manufacturing plants, they, they stick them in an area because they get tax breaks, they get cheap land, they got them, they're closer to the Mexican population out here that's on the east side, that's where the City of Industry is. So my point is that when the good and the great, you know, now they're sitting in Davos, when those decisions were made to push free trade, and I'm not saying... I'm not against free trade, but the bottom line is it had the effect of shifting the growth and the income distribution away from rural areas and because that's where the manufacturing base is or was. And so that is the struggle this administration is coming to terms with, and it's coming to terms with because it's more and more clear from more and more and more recent research that that's how globalization works, that you basically twist the knife and put it in the back of people in Indiana and Michigan and, and <laughs> Alabama and, and, and basically East L.A. And these are the people who suffer and the rest of us gain. You know, those of us who live in, in the Hollywood area, you know, you're, you're selling movies internationally. Half of revenue from Hollywood comes from international uh, sale of movies. So if you're an actor, uh, a movie guy, you know, producer guy, you're doing fine. You think the world's great with globalization. If you're getting your ass kicked in your apparel company in the city of industry, you have a little different point of view. And you certainly have a different point of view if you're out in Ohio or uh, Iowa or Missouri in a manufacturing plant that was placed there 30 years ago because the land was cheap and the, the cost of living was lower for your workers. And they're all now seeing those plants close. And they're isolated. They haven't seen a wage raise rise in 10, 15 years. And they have a right to be pissed off because, in fact, the federal uh, consensus, the top-down big guy, the guy like me showing up talking about free trade, stuck it to you and didn't tell you, didn't read you the fine print that free trade will benefit one group and then hurt another and net out to net positive, but with two different groups benefiting, one benefiting, the other not benefiting. Right. Well, so with what we are seeing with an incoming Trump presidency, we're going to expect that a lot of these jobs are going to return in some shape or form. Is that uh, too, is that, that wasn't just a campaign promise, I don't think, right? So, so to what extent do you actually see something like this reestablishing itself back into the U.S. economy, manufacturing jobs, even if it's not exactly the same sorts of uh, manufacturing that was in the past? Maybe they're building wind turbines or something instead. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, this is the Anthony Scaramucci point that he made in Davos that I saw a couple days ago, which is, uh, you know, the last 50 years of trade pacts, which is, he's right. I want to speak to the viewers that he's right about this. Uh, We're we're rolled out to benefit uh, developing countries, to to increase the growth rates of the poor countries. Now, we had a vested interest in the United States seeing this. because A rich world is 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 a safe world. And a prosperous world is a safe world. And this was the idea. Now, what happened is it, it pushed out and it ignored, you know, the, the, the fact 
for example, in the apparel industry in you know, Los Angeles, with $43 billion of imports coming in, and I, I think there's a billion dollars of exports. A billion dollars. Mm. So that's 43 to 1 ratio. That's, that, I mean, any half brain guy will go hold it. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of bad. And this is why Scaramucci's pointing out, and Wilbur Ross is pointing out, and they're right, that symmetry, meaning we have to have deals that benefit both sides more tangibly, more obviously. I mean, if a guy like me comes to this type of show and says, hey, what's the export of the apparel industry, largest manufacturing in the United States? And I say, a billion, one billion. What's the import? Forty-three billion. And I go, well, hold it. That's kind of crazy. And if, I, if it's 30 billion and 15 billion or 30 billion and 20 billion, which is where I think we're headed, okay. um, you can see that being closer to the language of symmetry. So what's going to happen here is we're going to get a renegotiation of trade deals almost immediately. Uh, it's not going to be easy for these to be done, but over time we're going to look for symmetry, meaning more exports, more tying of access to our markets to actually taking exports from us. It's going to be kind of a mercantile, it's called mercantile's view, where you say, look, man, if you want to do this with us, we've got to get you to really, you know, you buy $10 billion of apparel exports for us if you want to do that much business with us, and you will buy that much, and it will happen, and we will verify it five years from now, and that's going to put the spin back into the, and the income back into these rural areas and these outlying areas and these industrial areas, because that, the, the economics of cheap land and cost of living are still beneficial, so they will reassert themselves, but like you pointed out, Mark, it will not be the same manufacturing plant. It will be a totally different owner. It'll be more automated. And but maybe even that is good because that's the refresh in these areas that that that's uh, going to also create productivity gains and hopefully those are, will sustain themselves going forward and that is a good thing. So I'm I'm on board with his idea. I think um, it ha- the execution is critical, and right. the problem is on the one uh, big push. You push too hard, you get a trade war, um, which is terrible. Uh, the other way, you do nothing or you achieve nothing and you lose the support of your, your, the people who say, well, great, we elected you to do this, and then you blew it. You didn't do anything. And the, and the Trump administration is going to be gone. So that's the, the difference. They've got to walk the fine line between starting a train war and keeping people happy with the reality that whatever they achieve is probably going to be half a loaf, not a full loaf, because that's just how trade backs work if you don't want to start a trade war. Well, I mean, you're talking specifically about China here, or are you talking about just anywhere? Even if it, in aggregate, it'll all add up to being a, a bad news situation. Or is it mostly, we don't want to start one with China especially? Well, we're a smart guy, so he'll focus on the big, the big kahuna, which is China, and then he'll focus secondarily on Mexico. Um, and they're, mm-hmm. not, they're interrelated situations, and there's a lot of complexity there. But the NAFTA will be under review, and this thing called the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now... One thing I understand about the Trans-Pacific Partnership is the way it was arranged is basically everything in Asia and us and Latin America, not China. So the idea was with the Trans-Pacific, when, when it was liked and seen as a thing pushed, the idea was a pivot to Asia by the United States. The idea was to create a trade block that in population terms and GDP terms had as much weight as China itself. 
So that's why we did it with Vietnam and Japan and ourselves, because you know, look, we got 1.3 billion people. Let's let's accumulate enough countries that can throw a weight against China. So here again, this is this, the interesting paradox: is they get out of the TPP, they're going to leave an opening for China to assert itself in Asia much more strongly, and that's the problem again with it, with the rhetoric versus the reality is that the TPP, uh, a lot of these trade pacts, Mark. Are, 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 are on the backs of military agreements. For example, NATO. NATO laid down um, European Union uh, thinking on trade, okay. and it still retains a lot of the Euro-Atlantic Alliance stuff, continues to keep the free trade pact going with the United States. This is the same is true for the TPP. So if you pull away from the TPP, there is a corollary that you're pulling away militarily and because because the military will protect the financial interests and the economic interests of a country. So when there's less of that, there's less military stuff. And the problem, again, with that thinking in Asia is that opens the door for the Chinese, and they will roll it out. And that's that whole South China Sea thing, because that's where the sea lanes are, where the big container ships go through the South China Sea. The reason they're building those islands is because that's where the trade is. And that's the problem with getting out of the trade pact, is that the whole point of the trade pack and the goal going was to get some counterweight going, to get all these trade flows in Asia working with us and get enough of them built up that China had a real, real competitor, a.k.a. us, in Asia. And that thing is now dead. We'll see, but we replaces it. But in all these things that are bad and we're appealing and all this language, you've got to remember that um, you've got to do something, and you've got to put something in place. And it may end up be that some facsimile without that name, without that big label, comes back because this is the reality of the situation. That if you walk away from Asia, you open the door for China to make a bigger footprint in the very area where you don't want to do so. Very interesting. Now we just have a couple more minutes left before we go to another break, John. Um, so the TPP used to be considered by I think many people the, the Cadillac of trade deals. Um, I don't know if that's still going to be. True. If that if that's the outlook that uh, that the incoming administration has, or if it's pretty much a, 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 a known thing that yes, it was a very well constructed deal, but we're going a different route anyway. Well, what, what, what do you think? Just in a couple minutes that we have left. Well, you know, this president is not a not a details guy, and he's not an experienced government executive, so he probably will roll over on the TPP. The problem is. Um, I don't know the fine print of these documents of when it's not implemented, so it's not in play. And, and tabling it, and if you say I'm killing it or we we're getting away from it, doesn't mean the work hasn't been done. Because what happens is you do these rounds. So there was like I think 19 or 20 rounds to get the TPP. There were literally you met in Brunei, you met in Indonesia, you met in Japan. There were 19 of these things. So what's left is you basically say, okay, you know, we chip away and then we leave on the shelf wherever we were last time. So when you, quote, kill the TPP, you got to remember, you didn't kill the work you did. You just leave it on the shelf in case you want to use it later. Because you haven't implemented it anyway. So what's going to kill the TPP is you're just not going to have round 21 and 22 and 23 and implement it. You're going to stop at 20, leave it on the shelf, and say it's dead. But that's, okay. death is not to be considered, you know, completely thrown in the toilet. It's just, it's like books on my shelf. I haven't read them in a while, but they're there if I want to consult them, and that's what the TPP will begin to, begin to be. Putting it in limbo, more or less. Right, limbo, right. And that's, you're going to call it dead for your, your, your base, 
and you're going to say you're going to kill it in the media on Twitter, but the truth is all you did is you just didn't open the book on your shelf, but you knew it was there and you will remain there. Very, very interesting. Okay, we still have one minute left. Um, so it's a different situation with NAFTA. Again, we don't have a lot of time to, to, to totally delve into it, but would you expect that that would be a, a, a trade deal that gets torn up uh, with Wilbur Ross now as the uh, uh, coming into the cabinet and, and uh, with Trump's rhetoric as, it, as it's been? NAFTA's done, you think? No, I don't think so. NAFTA, I mean, you got to remember Trump is a negotiator, so he's going to roll out an extreme position to begin with and then move to the center. That's just how he thinks it's the art of the deal. So a couple things about NAFTA you understand is that uh, having looked into it, and it's, by the way, you can go to Council of Foreign Relations and Foreign Affairs magazine, and you can read 20 articles on the NAFTA and its positive effects, and they're, they're out there. You can get them online, and I encourage people to do so. Don't take all this Twitter, you know, feed stuff. They're, you know, twenty. They're twenty pages long. But the bottom line, you all learn. You learn from it is that the real winners, in terms of stimulating growth over the last twenty years, were the Canadians. The Canadians. Yeah, you heard that right. The Canadians. Now let me explain this to you. Because when you put a country of one hundred ten million people who are poor into an alliance, trade alliance with a country with three hundred million people and a country with thirty million people. Oh, I gotta hold. I gotta have to hold on to this, John. I really, really gotta go to a break right now. But um, so let's let's pick this up right after we come back from a, from a word from our sponsors. Okay. Uh, I'm so sorry to do that. Uh, we're with John Blank, Chief Strategist from Zach's Investment Management. We'll be right back. Thanks for staying with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. Once again, this is Mark Vickery, joined today by John Blank, the Chief Strategist at Zax Investment Management. Uh, this is the third, third segment we're talking about here, and we were talking about NAFTA when we went to break, uh, and you were saying, you're, so instead of talking about Mexico right away, which everybody would expect when a NAFTA discussion begins, you go straight the other direction, 
and brought up Canada, but then I had to cut you off. So let's let's pick up where we left off then uh, on the NAFTA deal and its and its future. Right. So here, here, if we just think about footprints of companies, you know, market yeah. footprints, how big the, the 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 market they serve is, right? So if you're a Mexican firm in a what's called autarky, meaning you're you're uh, separate. Autarky means you have no trade relations, you have no no interaction with the world. Your market would be 110 million poor people. So you know, pretty small market. You know, big in numbers and people, but big low in incomes. The United States would have 300 million wealthy people. It would be just a ginormous market. That's the real thing about all trade packs with us is that we are so much bigger in wealth and numbers than these other groups, that we are the big opportunity for a Mexican steel firm by, by you know, Cymec, Grupo Cymec, which is a Mexican steel company. The reason they're going up in price is because they own Republic Steel in Ohio. <laughs> Republic Steel is going to make money in the Trump administration, and so Grupo Cymex rallying, even though it's a Mexican stock, because they bought into the market where they had 300 million customers. The same is true for Canada. Now, this is why it benefited them, because if you're a Canadian bank, for example, BMO Montreal, Bank of Montreal, uh, mm-hmm. and all these other big groups up in Canada have been buying up, you know, they bought uh, 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 City National in Los Angeles recently because they, they got a footprint down here. Canadian banks have expanded across the United States. In, in Chicago, you know, Harris Bank was bought by BMO. So Canada, with a 30 million person footprint, uh, a one-tenth the size of the United States, firms that could expand 10 times and then even with Mexico, you know, 50, 20 times larger, uh, got the biggest benefit because they had the smallest footprint to begin with. So what you learn about it is the footprint you begin with will determine how much success a trade agreement becomes. Because if you think about Canada and autarky, then you've got to run every business, whether it's Bob Hortons or you know, BlackBerry, on 30 million people. But if you can sell Blackberries to 500 million people in NAFTA, it's going to explode your business. And this is what happened with the banking system in, in Canada and a lot of other things. So the Canadians end up having most uh, incremental increase to growth when they join NAFTA versus the other two groups because of the simple fact they were a lot smaller. Interesting. Very interesting. And now, so in your stock market outlook that uh, came out earlier this month, uh, you talked about uh, an individual by the name of Peter Navarro. Can you uh, go into who who Peter Navarro was and how he might be uh, relative uh, in this conversation? Yeah, this is very interesting, Mark. I I, want to get everybody on YouTube. I really do, and it's free on YouTube. And so go to YouTube tonight or sometime this weekend and Google Death by China, Death by China. It's a one-hour okay. and 40-minute Netflix documentary that was put out by uh, Martin Sheen, the actor, and Peter Navarro, who is his friend, and a professor of economics and public policy at the Paul Mirage School of Business in UC Irvine, which is down in Orange County. Okay. Now, Peter is 90, he's born in 1950. He's a 67-, 68-year-old guy. So he, he, he and Sheen, and I like the president, are all close to 70 when they're doing this. And he's had a full, full career. But to, well, the reason you want to watch Death by China is Trump read the book, Death by China. And the rest of the title of Death by China is How America Lost Its Manufacturing Base. So in an okay. hour and 20 minutes, you can go through this video and really hear and see in a more, more tangible way what's Peter and the president and all these people think about China and the trade issues we've talked about on the show. So what you need to learn about Peter Navarro is who he is. And this is why I want to bring out that Peter Navarro, you know, now we talk about his book, Death by China, it's really dramatic. 
Here's what he says in his, in his bio. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Harvard. Uh, he's received multiple teaching awards for MBA courses. So he's a very informed guy. He's a very engaged guy. And here's something that's very fascinating. Prior to teaching, Peter Navarro served in the Peace Corps in Southeast Asia and worked in Washington, D.C. as an energy environmental policy analyst. He also hmm. ran for office in San Diego. He ran for mayor in 92. He ran for the 49th Congressional District in 96. And in 2001, he tried to get a city council seat. He lost all three times. So the thing you learn about Peter Navarro is a very interesting guy. And you learn he's a Peace Corps guy, and he's an energy and environmental guy. So Peter Navarro, you know, is not the guy to not understand the benefits that China got from opening free trade, even though he criticized it in this death by China because of the pollution and what they did to you know, prison work and all this stuff to the United States. He does understand these issues very well. He's more lefty than anybody wants to admit, and he's going to probably end up, like I said, with the idea of symmetry, like Anthony Scaramucci's put out there. And, but again, so you're going to start off with a lot of incendiary rhetoric, a lot of opening positions that are going to be sound very threatening, and then these are the guys behind the screen going to do the deals, and they're frankly going to understand this better than I think people understand. And I, I expect, or at least I hope, that, that we move towards uh, more balanced and symmetric trade deals as a result of this, but not no trade deals. Okay. Well, and that would seems like it would be a little difficult to, I mean, considering we're, how how fully ensconced we are in the global economy to, to dial that back that extremely seems like more of um, what you'd say on, a, on the campaign trail than what you'd actually be able to affect uh, once in office. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, and I think it's also what you would say before you open a negotiation and you're going to start to give back some of that extreme positioning uh, as the negotiation goes along. So, you know, in a negotiation you want to say, I'm going to close trade, and the other guy says, well, I'm going to start a trade war, and then you slowly move toward the middle of where you really, where the lines are that need to be redrawn. So it's just a process, and I, and I expect it to be much louder than people realize that the back end of it will be some type of mutually beneficial deal that the president feels he can sign with respect to the American people, and that we get some of this feedback because the manuf- growing the manufacturing base will be adding the jobs and the incomes into the areas of the country that need them. And, and that, that is the way you can get both inequality down from income terms on a geographic basis and grow this economy more, because as we talked earlier, there still is a U6, 9% unemployment. There's still room for that type of thing to happen, and those are the areas that would benefit most. Uh, very good. Okay, so we're, here we are still in January 2017, about to have a new president. We've been going over this and over this. Two things I wanted to, to bring, it's basically two sides of the same coin. Looking in 2017, large cap S&P 500 stocks and what's called the RUT stocks, the smaller cap uh, Russell index stocks. You're saying, and the reason I bring this up is because this is, comes from the stock market outlook again, and it really did kind of stand out to me. Uh, large cap S&P 500 stocks appear headed up in 2017, this is according to you, by about 2% to 9%. And then there's uh, major sell-side equity strategists on Wall Street that uh, have a, a wide range of 2299 for the year-end uh, uh, S&P uh, target at the end of 2017, all the way up to 2575. And then the Zacks outlook is somewhere in the middle of that. Can you go into explaining what this is all about? Yeah, well, basically, what we want to think about, you know, we all know this is one of the longest bull markets in history. There's been two others that have been um, 
longer or as long as this one. And one was, they're both relatively recent. And uh, the thing you understand is that we've gone up about 190% over the the uh, eight or ten years of this bull market, which is about, you know, um, something like 14% annual returns. So it's good, but not, not as strong as the other bull markets. The other long bull markets were averaging 19 and 21% annual returns. So this bull market, just like the growth rate that came from it, has been much more muted. So what we've seen is that, you know, the reason people are looking for 2 to 10% on the, on the S&P 500 is that's sort of the range that you see across this bull market. If it's a bad, bad year, quote, bad year for the S&P, that's probably just going to mean flat, and we're going to do plus 2%, which is basically a flat market that tests its highs and doesn't True go enough. past them. Mm-hmm. And if a 9% market, that's going to be your, you know, for 2200 that's going to be your 25 or 2600 at the end of the year. And this is just for large caps, or they tend to be a little bit less risky, and, and so to be a 9% up would be, uh, be an outstanding year, wouldn't it be? Right, and, that, and they only need to understand, you know, the Russell, the thing you got to remember, the Russell right. was, you know, it's been cranking from 800 to 1350 now. That's, that's right. you know, we're almost on a doubling over these last four or five years, but it, the bottom fell off for the last year and a half. So the Russell has been making up ground that it lost uh, during that whole fear and worry about things during the oil collapse. And the reason to know that is that high-yield bonds collapsed with the oil market. And that took risk off the table. And when you want to get de-risk a market, you move away from small-cap securities. So when OPEC came back in and, and pulled the oil price out of the dumps, it also re-risked the market, and people moved back into the Russell basically because of a re-risking of the markets. And so now if you look at a, a chart of the Russell and you just draw you know, a straight line from the highs of 15 back to 14 and so on, you'll see that we're basically back to a, a 15% annual return on the Russell and that we can, in fact, continue up with the Russell across this year the same way the S&P does, if not better. Interesting. So even though we've seen a nice bid up uh, on the Russell, on the small cap index, uh, since uh, the election on November 8th, you're saying we're, we're, it's not exhausted yet? It's not as long as the Trump um, administration doesn't. Um, you know, we don't know this, but the problem is, you know, is these is the opening positions on these trade deals and all this incendiary rhetoric on repealing Obamacare and all this other stuff, if these are all opening positions and they lead us to better policies down the road and the market bets on that, then we will see these rise much through the high end of the range. The problem is that if the market begins to get worried that these this incendiary rhetoric is going nowhere, it's not achieving anything, then there's disappointment and, and ennui and, and disgust with the president. And, and by the way, he has some of the lowest approval ratings in four decades. So there's another group of people who are just waiting and hoping he fails. So um, that's the, the, the balls and the bears for 2017, which is, does Trump fail? Is he the failed president? Or is, does he actually turn out to be the, the hero of these people that need one? Because a lot of the deals in the last 20 years have been overlooked their their needs and he's going to come back and help them out and that's the reality of that is he's probably going to give him half a loaf in a year and a half <laughs> and the problem <laughs> is a year and a half can be very noisy and we're going to see the the, the waxing and waning of that rhetoric and, and its results and hopefully I, you know as an american and as a citizen of the country and the world i i certainly hope and wish him the best of luck in doing this Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. But so you're saying that even if these things are, are enacted, and we just have a few seconds left, uh, in the near term, you're really not going to see a lot of the results 
until 2018 sometime. Is that correct? I would think. That would be my view. I think 2017 is going to be mainly about negotiations and resetting the dial and trying to move from the language of, of incendiary rhetoric to the reality of policies that might be better. And, I, and like, again, when we get a lot of these key positions are Goldman Sachs people. Uh, so when the president is off golfing in Mar-a-Lago, the real guy is going to be at his office in Washington. He's going to be a Goldman Sachs guy like Gary Cohn. Got to remember right. that he's not a dumb guy. And he's not an incendiary guy, and he understands right. the consequences of his decisions. John yeah, Trump, thank thanks might, so much for being with us today. Yeah, we got to go. This has been the Steady Investor with John Blank, Chief Strategist at Zach's Investment Management. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 